0: Hey church, my name's Jason, one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open your Bibles. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 will be our primary verse. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Before we look at this passage to begin, I want to remind you that this week is Ash Wednesday. We will have a live streamed or premiered Uh, gathering on YouTube at 7 a.m., 12 or noon, and then uh, 7 p.m. on Wednesday for us to walk through this important season together. So please pay attention to email and texting uh, communications. We'll send that link out shortly. Really a time for us to consider uh, as we anticipate Resurrection Sunday Easter, what it means that we are mortal, what it means that from Dust we came into dust, we shall return. What does it mean that God is sovereign over those things in our lives? So we'll look to him in considering that this week, Ash Wednesday. One of the primary themes that I think has kind of been clear through Romans chapter 3, particularly this this portion, if you remember, a a significant shift took place in verse 21. And and I think that that theme that really has... um, Been crystallized for us is that God wants us to know His righteousness. He wants us, He desires for us to know His righteousness. Let's read that passage in context. So, not just verse 25, but let's look at Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, and see if we can't pick up on that particular theme. Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this has been where we have taken considerable time because of the magnitude of the worth and the beauty and the truth that Paul, the writer of Romans, has taken to pack within these particular Verses, And and I think, again, one of those central themes is that God wants us to know his righteousness. See, in verse 21, Paul uses the word manifest. God makes known his righteousness apart from the law. Also in verse 21, Paul tells us that the law and the prophets have been bearing witness to the righteousness of God for generations. In verse 25, God put forward, or he presented Christ as the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the Father goes public if you will, with his righteousness through his son. And later in verse 25, Paul says the purpose of the propitiation was to show God's righteousness. And then finally, looking at verse 26, God's forbearance is meant to what? Show his righteousness righteousness in the present time. So what can we deduce and discern from this clear repetition and Paul repeating a particular idea? Well, it's that God wants us To know his righteousness. See, many of you likely struggle, as I know I have in many different seasons of my life, to believe that God desires to be known at all. I think we often think that He is He's hiding or He's playing hard to get. I think this is especially true in seasons of sorrow, pain, and disappointment. God can feel distant to us. He can feel as if as if, or we can feel rather as if we lack intimacy with him. So this truth that Paul repeats, and he's not repeating because he has forgotten, he's already said it. He's repeating because of how important it is and how easy it is for us to forget. He repeats this incredible encouragement because we are prone to believe for one reason or another that God doesn't want to draw close to us, that God doesn't want us to know him. But the truth of the Bible, the truth of the character of our God is that God desires to be known more than we could possibly desire to know him. God desires for us to know his righteousness. Additionally, most people in Chicago, I think, are comfortable with spiritual things as long as we agree they are, they are relative to persons, that is, that they remain personal and private. Many of you, perhaps, even think about your faith as a private practice rather than a visible experience or a visible expression. If you don't think that this is true, think about how we often confess our sin. We often do it privately. We often do it as vaguely as possible to say, all right, I checked that box, I did that thing, I confessed to at least someone without having to go public with my sin, without having to live this thing out in front of other people. See, this has not always been the practice of the Christian community. In fact, for centuries, Christians lived with distinction in a public manner. Historically, we've confessed our sins publicly and very specifically the scholar Justo Gonzalez identified this change, the shift in sort of the cultural pattern of Christians. He he identified the core reason was because it was the result rather of the privatization of sin. We've We've made it a private matter. And at Church in the Square, this is one of the reasons, as we did today, that we desire to do every time we gather as the church, even through a pandemic, we want to confess corporately. We want to get in the habit of speaking about our sin, confessing and lamenting our sin together in public. Nevertheless, in Romans 3, 21 through 26, one of the most important passages in the atonement anywhere in the Bible, we see that the righteousness of God is a public event. So as, as, as challenging as it is for us to, to see and believe and to embrace a faith that is a public expression or a public experience, a communal reality, we see that the righteousness of God is a public event. Jesus may have been born in obscurity, but he was nailed to the cross for the world to see. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that God has done something here in public, on the public stage of world history, in order that it might be seen and looked at and recorded and forever. The most public action that has ever taken place. Jesus dies in public. Why? Because God wants to be known. God wants us to know his righteousness. Jesus Christ, then, is the going public, hear this, of the righteousness of God. Jesus is the going public, the visible display, the manifestation, the clear and present reality of the worth and beauty and glory and majesty of the righteousness of God. This is why we constantly look to Jesus. This is why we constantly look to the cross because it is a public event that demonstrates the righteousness of God. We've seen this over the past number of weeks. We looked at verse 21, realized that Jesus is our righteousness revealed. Verse 22, in the first portion, Jesus is our righteousness received. And then the latter half of 22 on into 23, Jesus is our righteousness without distinction. And in 24, Jesus is our grace. The latter half of 24, Jesus is our redemption. Twenty-five. Jesus is our propitiation. And today, we'll consider the latter half of verse 25, that Jesus is our mercy. See, the heart of Paul's message in this latter portion of uh, verse 25 is all about mercy. He says, look at it again, verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's the verse. That's where we need to look today to see the mercy of God. That's where we need to consider who he is today. And so, in order to do this, let's ask for his help. We can't do this on our own. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to shine bright, brightly through the scriptures. We need his help to confess sin, to lament the brokenness of our world, and to receive and worship him uh, as a result. So, let's bow our heads and ask for God's help today. Heavenly Father, we do just that. We ask for your help. Help us to hear from you. Help us to see and savor the truth and beauty of Jesus. Help us to be witnesses, not not just for ourselves, but that we then would become heralds, speakers, and, and those who even incarnate the righteousness of God that is demonstrated to us most profoundly on the cross. So help me. Help me to be useful. Father, use my mind, use my heart, use my my whole being, my body for your glory in a way that makes clear and beautiful your word as it is. And so, Father, as your church, we desire to know you. We desire to follow you, especially in these pressing and challenging uh, days ahead of us and days that we are in. So be with us, we pray. We thank you that you are. You are such a good God to us. You are such a good God who is over all things. So we worship you now. We come to you now in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Okay, so what we read in this verse is that, that God is, what what Paul says, he's forbearant. And in forbearance, he does something, he passes over. And, and that, that that act, that that reality, that, that nature of who God is, that character quality is mercy. Theologian uh, Louis Burkhoff defines mercy as the goodness of God, The goodness and love of God, rather, shown to those who are in misery, distress, irrespective of desert. So no matter what they deserve, it is God's rescue and help for those who are in misery and distress. Writer Anne Lamott explains in her her book, Hallelujah Anyway, mercy is radical kindness. Mercy means offering or being offered aid in desperate straits. Mercy is not deserved. It involves absolving the unabsolvable, forgiving the unforgivable. Mercy brings us to the miracle of apology, given and accepted, to unashamed humility when we have erred or forgotten. Mercy is what God has shown us through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, the wrath-bearing act, the wrath-bearing work of Jesus Christ. Mercy, then, is the public witness of God to the world. It's how he shows himself to us. Mercy is the way in which he makes his righteousness known to you and known to me. Sin and evil and death, this is our misery. This is our distress that Berkhoff writes about. These are the desperate straits that we are in, as Lamont uh, highlights. And in such a bleak estate. God has shown us radical kindness through Jesus Christ. God has been incredibly kind to us. My sister, God has been kind to you through Christ. My brother, God has been kind to you through Jesus Christ. And in showing us this mercy, this kindness, he has given us himself. And today, that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about mercy. And to better understand the mercy of God and how it's demonstrated through the righteousness of God, particularly through the cross, let's ask a few questions. Let's ask a few things and try to highlight a few things, if you will. I'd like to explore the the act of mercy, the power of mercy, the deception of mercy, and finally the effect of mercy. So the act, the power, the deception, and then the effect. The act, the power, the deception, and then the effect So first, what is the act of mercy? Well, let's first admit something that I think is going on perhaps in our own hearts and minds as we even explore and approach this idea. Righteousness and mercy seem opposed to one another, don't they? If we are saying that God relents from just consequence in mercy, isn't his righteousness or justice diminished? See, when a person in power... Think in any season of history, uh, even now, when a person in power refuses to punish someone who is very clearly guilty, we do not consider that person in power to be righteous. We think of him or her to be passive or impotent or, or worst of all, self-serving. But the language Paul uses in Romans 3.25 causes us equal pause at first blush. He says that God passed over sins. God passed over sin. So how in the world does this show the righteousness of God? Well, it's important to note that in verse 21 and 22, God's righteousness is about his saving work through Jesus Christ. But in verses 25 and 26, the righteousness of God is actually about his character, his morality as a whole. So, so that means that to pass over does not mean, in this case, to forgive. And this is critical for us to understand. To pass over in this particular context is not to forgive; rather, pass over means to postpone punishment, the postponement of punishment. It's not salvific; it's radical kindness. It's likely that Paul is either responding as he writes this particular verse, and in this particular passage, he's responding to at least, at the very least, anticipating an or at the very least, anticipating an objection about the righteousness of God, that some may be calling into question God's moral consistency before Christ, so that specifically that God was, was different before Christ and after Christ, and maybe this is something that you have had to navigate or, or wrestle with uh, yourself. I wonder if, if you ever wondered that if salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, how were people saved before Christ? If God's wrath is only satisfied by Christ, how was God's wrath appeased to those who died before Christ? Is Paul, or even more importantly, is God being inconsistent? Is everyone saved by grace through faith, or just those who were born after Christ? Are you picking up on this? There's tension here. And if that's the case, if there's a different way that people are saved, when was the switch over? Was it the cross? Was it the resurrection? Was it somewhere on Saturday in between all of that? How was all this harmonized? Well, the Greek word translated uh, Passover in English is, is the Greek word parison. This word is used in Roman law. It refers to a will. And of course, a last will and Testament, uh, in that a person lays out legally binding terms to whom they're leaving their most valuable assets, or perhaps even all of their assets, assets. Parison refers to someone specifically who has has drafted his or her will but has left someone out of their will someone who likely would have expected or others would have expected to be included in that will so so think about a family family with four children let's say for whatever reason three of those children are included in their father's will and one of those children is not hopefully this is not your story but let, let's just, for instance, the one then who has left out, who has been left out of the will, embodies the idea of parison, of passing over. They, they have been intentionally overlooked. They have not been missed, but neither have they been forgiven. They, they have not been forgotten, nor has have they even been appeased of something, or, or there's something that has not been done for them, they have merely been passed over. So when Paul employs this word, this word parison, with respect to sin in Romans three twenty-five, he is not saying that they have been forgiven. He is he is saying rather that God has left unpunished those who had every reason to expect and even deserve punishment in consequence. In other words, God has shown them mercy. He has shown them radical kindness. Now, while this idea is, in fact, a mercy, it's also a warning. See, when he spoke to the modern elites in the Areopagus who worship man-made gods, in Acts 17, Paul warns them that God does not pass over sins forever. So turn to Acts 17. Let's look at this together. If if you've got an old-school Bible with pages, turn to the left, just a few pages. Acts 17, verse 29. Verse 29. And if you've got a device, just type in Acts 17, verse 29. And here's what the Apostle Paul says again as he's preaching to different people uh, with different worldviews, different ideas, really modern for their particular context. Romans 17, verse 29. Being then God's offspring... the dead, So Paul is obviously speaking about Jesus Christ coming and, and a new kind of expectation of this parison or this, uh, this, what Paul writes is the, the times of ignorance. He got overlooked or as some translators even put that God winked at times of ignorance. But Paul warns his listeners that while God has passed over their sins or left them unpunished, now he is calling for repentance. And a day is coming when repentance will not be possible. A day is coming when sins will not be overlooked anymore. And this is so vital for us to keep in mind. Perhaps those of us who think think that we're going to be young forever or live forever, could do whatever we want forever. In fact, that might be the reason that you moved to the city. It's because you felt like you could get away with stuff here for a little while. What, What the Bible is teaching us is that that is not a good way, a wise way to live. We should live as those who will be judged by Christ. We should live as those who are under his authority and his lordship, Because one day sins cannot be repented of. We cannot turn to Christ when he comes and brings heaven with him and sets all things to right. See, all sin, all evil will be judged and the sentence will be death. Okay, so what's all this mean? Is this about being held accountable for sins we committed before we met Jesus? Are are those the sins of former sins, are those the times of ignorance? Um, or is it, is it something else? Well, I, I don't think it's really about us, believe it or not. But according to scholar Douglas Moo, in the Old Covenant, God postponed the full penalty due sins, allowing sinners to stand before him without having yet a provided an adequate or satisfaction of the demands of his holy justice. In, in other words, Hebrews 10 verse, verse 4, For it is impossible... For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That means, hear hear this. Here's what's going on with passing over. That means the entire sacrificial system of the old covenant was pointing and preparing for Christ. The sacrificial system was never enough to bring about eternal reconciliation. It's never the point of it. True and lasting forgiveness is only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the first half of verse 25 in Romans chapter 3. So in mercy, God passed over former sins until Jesus came and died. So true forgiveness is possible because Jesus has come. and, And it is only possible. True forgiveness is only possible because of Jesus and only through Jesus. That's why in verse 26, it says, in Romans 3, at the present time, that was then, this is now. That's the act of mercy. Withholding judgment for the sake of righteousness. Withholding judgment for the sake of demonstrating, showing righteousness, namely through Christ. Well, how does this impact? Salvation especially since passing over is not salvific. So what does this look like when we do pull back and look at salvation? Well, before Christ, salvation was faith in God that he would send the Messiah. In the days of Christ, salvation was faith in God that Jesus was the Messiah. Today, salvation is faith in God that Jesus Christ is forever. Messiah, our hope, the one who brings all things together, the one who who dies in our place and for our sins, in other words, the fullness of now who we know the Messiah to be. So hear this, church, no matter what, no matter who, and no matter when, Jesus alone can and is Savior, because only through his blood is sin conquered and redemption secured, There is not a former Savior, there is not a future Savior whose name is not Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He is our hope. Can I get an amen? That's the act of mercy. Jesus is our mercy. So this act of mercy, though, points us somewhere. It points us to the power of mercy. Specifically, Paul points us to the nature of God, that his mercy to pass over former sins for a time, is due to his divine forbearance, which is God's tolerance. That's what that word means. But we can't think about tolerance in the way that we popularly use and consider this word today. Most progressive people in Chicago think about being tolerant as the virtue of allowing someone to be and do whatever they please as long as they don't harm or infringe on another's ability to be and do whatever they please, right? I mean, that kind of categorizes the general idea of tolerance in the modern worldview. So in short, the modern view of tolerance is not restraining people, not restricting, not putting restrictions on people. But that's not what the biblical writers have in mind at all when they speak about the forbearance or tolerance of God. Let's think about this. God's mercy is not the act of allowing people to do as they please. In other words, not restraining them as we would think about tolerance. What we've just learned is that God delays righteous judgment of sin. God does not do immediately what he has every right to do righteously. God does not do immediately what he has every right to do righteously. And immediately, what does he do? He waits. God waits. You believe that we have a God who waits, who is patient? He embodies the very thing that he calls us to embody. To so God waits. God's mercy is his willingness to not do all that he pleases or all that he could do. God's tolerance, then, is about his self-restraint. He restrains himself by passing over, by intentionally withholding judgment, by delaying his wrath. See, modern tolerance is about not restraining or restricting people. Divine tolerance is about God restraining himself. When we survey the nature of God throughout the Bible, we discover that God's mercy is related to his compassion and his steadfast love. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that predominantly carries this weight is the word hesed. God restrains His righteous judgment out of compassion and love, out of hesed, He is tolerant. This is the power of mercy. And there is an eternal abundance of this divine affection. Uh, Psalm 57, 9 and 10. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love, that's hesed is great in the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. God's steadfast love sustains us. We we don't deserve God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love protects and comforts us. What this reality then helps us to see is that all that we need for the fullness of eternal life and lasting joy, all that we need is God's mercy. It's why we sing praise the Lord His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. See, this is why we can say that divine tolerance brings life and modern tolerance brings death. That's the deception of mercy. Tolerance, this sort of modern ilk of tolerance or this modern brand of tolerance. A life without restrictions, promise is flourishing and joy, but it always leads to death. And I want to take some time to warn us about this idea of modern tolerance and, and a, a life without restraint, a life without restriction. Why it's so deceptive and it's the opposite of mercy. In, in sort of our modern space and moment, we are really attracted to tolerance, the idea of tolerance. It's, it's taken hold just about everywhere. And in in sort of Western progressive society. And in many respects, there there are good reasons. There are good ideas behind this. So I want to be charitable that often when people speak about being tolerant, we're talking about the value of acceptance and not being judgmental towards others. That's a very good thing. We'd say yes and amen to that. That's a Christian virtue. However, the problem in modern society and in cities like Chicago is that we've conflated judgmentalism with disagreement. And so anytime we communicate a a universal truth in general and and specifically loving, submitting to King Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life and his universal lordship, this can be dubbed as hate speech or at least a view of the world that is highly intolerant. See, this is the tension and hypocrisy of tolerance. Sociologist George Yancey, who is black and a Christian, shared with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof and here, here's what he told them. Here's what Yancey tells Christoph. Outside of academia, I face more problems as a black man. But inside academia, I face more problems as a Christian, and it is not even close. See, modern tolerance double backs on itself. It always leads to hypocrisy. It's not a livable worldview. Why would we say that? You see, we believe that tolerance will set us free, right? And this is this is what we believe is a, is a, sorry, a free republic is all about having these sort of like tolerant rules of, of, of taking away restrictions as much as we possibly can. But it actually enslaves us. That's because our modern definition of freedom is flawed. Most people understand freedom as the removal of restrictions. And that, that's where tolerance comes from, not restraining people. That Uh, they can truly be free. When we don't restrain, we actually are totally free. This is what we we believe. However, the definition of freedom is in direct conflict with the Bible and reality. Freedom is not about the absence of restrictions. Freedom is about having the right restrictions. Not about the absence of restrictions, but about having the right restrictions. Dr. Keller, Timothy Keller, in his book Reason for God, explained it this way. In many areas of life, Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater power and scope of our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. Elsewhere, Dr. Keller uses the illustration of a fish, which I think is helpful. A fish is not free when restrictions are removed, but when the right ones are in place. A fish is not more free when they are allowed to choose between dry land and water as their habitat. A fish is only free when they are restrained, when they are restricted in their life to the right habitat, the right restrictions, namely water. So, what about humans? What are the right restrictions for us? The ones that are harmonious with our nature. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his listeners this in Matthew 6:24. Famously, he says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, he is not suggesting that either master will do as long as you commit to one, as long as you're faithful to one. That's absurd. He has just gotten done in the previous portion of the Sermon on the Mount, explaining that laying up treasures on earth leads to destruction, loss, and pain. So freedom is not about making a choice, nor having multiple options available to you. Freedom, Jesus says, is bound and being bound to a master who gives you life, not death. And modern tolerance leads to death. Why? Two reasons. And please keep in mind, we're taking time to focus on this modern view of tolerance because it it sort of demonstrates itself, sort of shows itself, broadcasts itself as true mercy in our world, true mercy in our city, true mercy perhaps in your family and immediate social circle. But we, but we have to understand as, as followers of Jesus, that's not true. This is why we're pulling it apart and helping us to see what it is. So two reasons why it leads to death. First, it leaves people without real truth. Author Rebecca McLaughlin explains that religious truth cannot be untangled from historical truth. For instance, the historical claims of Jesus, and particularly his resurrection, are either true or they are not. And she writes, our believing or not believing in the resurrection may change us, but it does not change the objective reality of what took place 2,000 years ago. No matter how much you believe, No matter how much I believe, we do not change historical reality and historical truth. And so when our highest esteem in modern society is to never put restrictions on people, we eventually will neglect truth itself. See, it doesn't matter if Jesus makes you feel good. It doesn't matter if Jesus ultimately helps you even do good things for the world. What matters is if he actually rose from the dead if he actually is Lord of the universe, if he actually is ruling and reigning this minute over all things. That's what matters. And no matter what we believe or what is taking place in our world, and we do not want to free ourselves from that restriction, no matter what good it may cause in the short term. We want to be bound by that reality because in that reality is where we find truth. Secondly, modern tolerance leads to death because it neglects the truth. Well, that's the first one, excuse me. But also because it leaves people without real mercy. So, so it masquerades as real mercy, but it actually leaves people without mercy. It feels, uh, tolerance does, like refusing judgment at first. It feels like refusing criticism, refusing to hate people. However, the Bible teaches us that sin and evil have caused misery, distress, and that we now, as a human race, human people, are in desperate Straits and tolerance fails to acknowledge our bleak situation. Therefore, mercy is not even possible. So so to it, it has to, to to be truly merciful, we have to first admit that there's a problem or, or something that has gone wrong and gone awry in order to be merciful towards. Mercy requires the admission of consequence and guilt of which we would pass over or with suspend judgment or withhold or postpone punishment we cannot be merciful if we do not admit the bleakest state that we are in tolerance never admits it tolerance merely steps back and says let's not judge let's not hate nothing is broken everybody can determine their own view their own way this is this this is the elsa mentality that we have no rights no wrongs no rules for me why sing it it's fine sing it cuz i'm free right Surely we can do better than a cartoon princess in our worldview. Surely we can do better. Okay, so the, the act of mercy is God's delayed judgment. The power of mercy is God's forbearance. And we must be vigilant against the deception of mercy, modern tolerance. And the good news is that divine forbearance always leads to real mercy and real truth and real and lasting life. Why? Because Jesus is our truth, and Jesus is our mercy. Both are proven through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Look again, Romans 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. This there in the beginning of that second sentence in verse 25, this refers back to the propitiation of Jesus' blood. You see, because Jesus has borne the wrath of God, because Jesus has appeased the anger of God, as we looked at last week, we can find life. This is how God's mercy extends beyond former times of ignorance up and through this present age on into eternity. God's radical kindness is that when he no longer passed over sins, he placed the consequence of sins eternally on his son. That's the power of mercy. Passing over is not giving permission. Passing over is a radical kindness. It's mercy. See, he is tolerant in former times by restraining the full weight of his justice. He is tolerant in this present age by placing the full weight of his justice on his one and only son. That's the power of divine mercy. That's the power of compassion. That's the power of chesed, steadfast love. That's what shows us the utter righteousness of God, and God wants us to know his righteousness. Here's how Paul explains it to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19. This is so good. Hear this, church. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let's not miss this. Here's the question. How is that a righteous God? As we asked at the beginning, how is that a holy God? How is that a God of truth? Was not counting trespasses against them against sinners, against people who are guilty? How could he be so tolerant and remain righteous? How could he possibly be so forbearing and remain just? Well, it's not that he wasn't counting sins at all. It's that he wasn't counting sins on them. He wasn't counting sins against them. Rather, he was counting them against Christ. Modern tolerance tries to deal with sin by rejecting even the idea of sin and rejecting all therefore, personal restrictions and restrainments like the law and God's righteousness. This leads to death. When we reject personal and moral restrictions of reality, this leads to death, but divine tolerance conquers sin because God restrains himself through Christ. That leads to life. This is why Jesus is our mercy. He himself is our mercy. He is not passive or permissive towards sin. He dies for our sin. In the same way then, that blood above the doorposts of ancient Israelite households protected them from death, so too your life and mine are protected from death when the blood of Christ washes us clean of a guilty conscience. When, when Jesus' blood becomes the marker of our lives, that's what saves us from death because Jesus himself is our mercy. God wants us to know his righteousness. So what does he do? He shows us mercy. The act is passing over. The power is God's forbearance. The deception is modern tolerance. What's the effect? What happens to a people who have experienced this mercy of Jesus. Well, let's just be let's just keep it simple. If you have been shown mercy, you will show mercy. We will be a merciful people, church in the square. If we have been the beneficiaries of the great and radical kindness of God, we will be radically kind. It's easy, isn't it, to embrace tolerance in the modern American church—a sort of modern idea of it. As a result, then, what happens within a community that has embraced this is that we become very comfortable in proximity with sin. We're cool with it. We fail to pray for our brother and sister, for one another to be guarded from sin as much as we pray just for them to be happy, to be safe, to feel good. We neglect asking our our brother about his addiction and our sister about her pain through trauma because it's just hard to talk about those things. So we just live in this comfortable proximity. It's hard to call someone out on a post that we we saw on social media. So we just kind of talk about it and silently judge them in our hearts instead of actually engaging with them for their good. We call that kind, but it's really this modern tolerance that leads to death because there's no truth and there is no embrace of real mercy. It's not radically kind to be passive towards our sin and the sins of our our brothers and sisters. It's not. Mercy, just like Jesus, is not passive in the face of sin. It's kind. Mercy demonstrates itself through kindness. That's what James instructs his readers in James 2 Twelve and thirteen, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we are to be a people of mercy, we need to learn to show compassion and kindness to each other rather than tolerance. What's that look like? It looks like the woman at the well. Jesus drew close to her, drew close to her shame so that he could wash her shame away. It looks like the woman caught in adultery. Jesus sends away her would-be abusers and executioners, but he also tells her to sin no more. It looks like the crowd Jesus saw. Jesus had compassion for them like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost, and he was going to go find them. It looks like the incarnation, the Son of God, takes on flesh, draws near to us to die for us, full of grace and truth. The act of mercy is the passing over of former sins. The power of mercy is God's divine forbearance. The deception of mercy is modern tolerance and the effect of mercy. When we have a true encounter with the mercy of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the effect will be kindness. Mercy is not license to sin. Mercy is a license to be kind. Mercy is a kindness which demonstrates the gospel, the righteousness of God, a radical kindness which has first been demonstrated and shown to us. And when we live mercifully towards others, towards your brothers and sisters in your group, in your family, your church family, and in your neighborhood, when we show mercy and kindness to one another, we actually are demonstrating the righteousness of God, not only to each other, but to the world. And God wants us God wants the world to know his righteousness, and therefore the church finds a role within that, demonstrating, showing, making public demonstration and expression of the righteousness of God through mercy and kindness and love. See, the church is meant to be the public expression, the public witness of Christ, full of grace and truth. So may we be a radically kind people that the world may see a radically kind and righteous God. Heavenly Father, may it be true for our good. and your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said amen.